This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm here on a sultry London afternoon with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. Who's actually in Belgium, on the France-Belgium border. <laughs> Joining us for this episode is the multi-talented, multifaceted Jason King, chair of the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at NYU. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Barney. Hello, Mark, <laughs> Jasper. Happy Hi. to be here. Great to see you. <laughs> really great to have you here. We last saw you when you were... Doing research on Freddie Mercury in our archives here in Hammersmith. I don't remember how long ago that was. Hopefully we're going to talk a bit later about Freddie and Boy George and others, as well as about Beyonce and the late Mo Austin, who we lost the day before yesterday. Jason, will you tell us about your early years in Canada and specifically where your love of music began? Sure. So I was born and raised in Canada, in Edmonton, Alberta, to be specific. And usually when I say that, people eyes light up, not necessarily because <laughs> of recognition, because they're just so shocked that I'm from Edmonton. I've actually been, I think. No, not quite. Maybe we stopped off there <laughs> on the way to Jasper in the Rockies. Ah, yes, that, that sounds about right. Edmonton is a fantastic city. Um, happy to come from Canada and specifically to come from Edmonton. I spent first 16 years of my life there and my family's from Trinidad. They were born, my parents were born and raised in Trinidad. Then they came to Canada in the late 1960s, had children there. So that's where I was born and raised. I think it still shapes the way that I think about the world. I live in America, but I, I'm very much a kind of outsider in America in a lot of ways in terms of perspective and all kinds of different things. But it was a, it was a, you know, I had a, a good childhood. It's definitely where I discovered my love of music. That partly came from my parents and their record collection. They had a huge record collection that was that was sprawling in the way that a lot of folks who came through the sixties and early seventies, you know, their collections were. So there was Buffy Saint Marie and Jimi Hendrix and Roberta Flack and all kinds of stuff in between. Calypso was big in our house because we were from Trinidad. Um, we also had the Edmonton Public Library, and I lived just a few blocks away from it. And at the time, you could go out and take 10 vinyl albums out at any given time, you know, with your card. 
So I would just go and take vinyl albums out, listen to them, do needle drop, record stuff that I liked and go right back to the library on my bicycle and take out another 10. And I think that's how I developed <laughs> like this encyclopedia knowledge of music because I was just going to the library and borrowing music, listening and just like experimenting and exploring all kinds of different sounds. Ooh. So they never said, you've already taken out 250 albums this, this week, Jason. <laughs> they sure did. They sure did. <laughs> they did. Well, the thing, they, you know, you could do 10 and then you could return the 10. So I would just yes. like, I learned how to almost like literally needle drop, just like I would get, mm. you know, a banana rama record and I'd be like, drop, drop, drop. Yeah, eh, nothing. I like this song. I like that song. Let me record this one onto the next one and then just keep going. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> so like the equivalent of, you know, listening to the first 15 seconds of a track and then deciding whether it's for you. Absolutely. You're already doing that. Yeah, yeah. Pre, yep. Pre-internet. Pre-streaming <laughs> services. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Sort of grazing, really, or sampling at the buffet yeah. of yeah. music. I gather that 16 you left for Ottawa. At least that's what your Wikipedia page says. You went to study at Carlton University. There's a, a reference to the American Musical and Dramatic Academy, and I wasn't sure where that was because it's got the word American in it. I left home to go study at Carleton University, and I, I studied mass communications, journalism, political science. I did that for a year, living in Ottawa. So for those who don't know the geography, Edmonton is you know Midwest, Northern Canada. Ottawa is all the way over on the east, east so I yeah. moved out. My mother had actually went to Carleton University. Both my mother and father went to McGill University in Montreal, but then my mother studied at Carleton as well. So, you know, it felt like I was still in the kind of family way, family tradition studying, but I really wanted to be in music. I wanted to do theater. I, I just wanted to be in entertainment. I had done a lot of singing when I was in high school. I was part of like musical theater. And I thought I should go to New York. Like, what am I doing not being in the city where it all happens? And so I auditioned for the American Musical and Dramatic Academy to do a degree in theater. And I got in. And so I left, I think that summer, you know, sometime in the summer of 1992. And I studied at the American Musical and Dramatic Academy. And I took theater, I took, you know, music, music theory, all of that. So that was my introduction to New York. And that's when I arrived. And when did you start writing about music? I mean, I've, I've read about this panel that you were on with the then editor of Vibe magazine. But were you writing about music before that, Jason? I was. So I, you know, I was really interested in being a writer. I knew I was a good writer when I was in high school. I wanted to pursue writing. That's why I ended up going to Carleton University to pursue mass communications and writing and journalism. And I wanted to do that, but I was really into being a performer and I wanted to be on stage. And so I was like, I don't know how to reconcile those two things. And so when I came to New York, I was very much focused on being a performer, but I got into the idea of writing about music when I did my undergraduate degree at the New School for Social Research in New York. And there they took and accepted credits from my associate's degree from American Musical Dramatic Academy in theater. But the caveat was that you couldn't take any more performance classes. You could only take classes in liberal arts and those kinds of areas. And so I started taking these classes where I was thinking more critically about the arts, thinking more critically about popular culture and actually writing essays on the music that I loved. And it struck me at that time, even as an undergraduate student, that there were very few people 
writing on certain aspects of culture that I was really interested in, right? Like I didn't see a lot of people writing on R&B music, for instance, contemporary R&B. I didn't see a lot of people writing on some of the changes that were happening in hip hop, especially around the rise of digital production in the mid 1990s. And so I applied to the Department of Performance Studies at New York University because I wanted to continue with my studies and I wanted to write more about popular music. And that seemed like a convenient place to do it. Performance studies is a relatively new department at New York University where you could study live performance. Why do we need performance? What is performance? What does it mean culturally? And so my focus there was writing on popular R&B and hip hop. I did my dissertation, my master's and my, my PhD there, and did my dissertation on hip hop looking at uh, Timbaland, Missy Elliott, and other figures like that, Maxwell as well, so some R&B in there too. And at the time, I, uh, I, was on a pan- I was doing a little bit of writing for like just some underground magazines. I was not having any luck getting my work you know, uh, published at any of the major publications where I wanted to be published. I remember sending endless letters to the Village Voice Eric Weisbard, who I now work with uh, as part of the executive committee of the Pop Conference, was editor at Village Voice at the time. And I would just send him letters, like cold letters, like, please publish me. No response <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, but it just ha- so happened that I was doing a panel. I think it was on on masculinity in hip hop music. And on the panel was Emil Wilbekin, who was then the editor at Vibe magazine. And, you know, we both spoke on the panel and afterwards he said, why are you not writing for Vibe magazine? And I'm like, I've been trying to write for Vibe magazine. I've been sending (laughs) clips endlessly. And he's like, well, just send them to me. And so I sent them clips and instantly I started writing for Vibe. I started doing reviews for Vibe. Elizabeth Mendes Berry was my editor. She's now at One World Books. John Caramanico was the associate editor. He's a pop critic at New York Times. And I had an amazing time at Vibe magazine. And that was really the start of my professional writing career. Do you remember when you first saw Vibe and what it represented for you? Yeah, Vibe was was everything for me in the 90s. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I had such an education being in New York in the mid 1990s and just exploring all of the culture that was happening at that really kind of watershed time. And Vibe was kind of at the heart of some of that, right? Like it was the it was not only like substantial you know publication in terms of its coverage of black music and black culture and black you know lifestyles but also it was just cool like it was just a cool place with really cool writers and they were on the sort of cutting edge of like taste in terms of curating black popular culture and so you know i read vibe religiously as a reader prior to ever writing for it and i was you know, really, I really admired some of the writers that I read in Vibe, whether we're talking about a Dream Hampton or Greg Tate or Danielle Smith or Scott Poulson Bryant. I knew all the names. I knew the editors. Like it was one of those magazines that I, you know, I had a kind of intimacy with. I felt really comfortable <laughs> with that magazine. It was that and Village Voice, frankly, the Village Voice being, you know, the alternative left newspaper in New York, where you also had this amazing music section, you know, with writers like Nelson George and Greg Tate and, and Carol Cooper and others. And so I read those religiously. I was soaking everything up as a teenager, you know, early 20s in New York and Vibe and Village Voice were two of the most important publications for me. How many pieces did you write for the Village Voice, roughly, and over what period of time? I wrote a few pieces for Village Voice, probably about 10 or so. I was brought into Village Voice in the early 2000s by Richard Goldstein, 
you know, the then executive editor of Village Voice, one of the first rock music journalists of all time. And Richard, you know, he, I had invited him to, to my classes at NYU. I'd already started teaching at NYU and we had gotten to know each other that way. And he invited me to write a piece for the queer issue of Village Voice that came out in like the summer of 2003, I think. And so that was the first piece I ever wrote for Village Voice. It was called Remixing the Closet. And it was looking at the idea of the down low, which had become this phrase that everybody was using to, you know, that I thought, hey, there's another way to look at this, a revisionist way to look at this idea of the down low as a African American take on the closet, another way of thinking about how people exist in the world. And so that was published there. And then I actually met Chris Gow, who is music editor with Chuck Eddy. And Chris Gow took a liking to my writing and asked me to start writing for, for Village Voice. And so I, I wrote, I don't even know how many pieces, but a number of pieces for them. I loved yeah. everything I got to write at the Village Voice. And it was amazing to be kind of mentored into the industry by both Richard Goldstein and Robert Chris Gow, who I think of as kind of pioneering figures. Yeah, absolutely. How did you go about developing your writing style of kind of blending quite in-depth analysis, kind of academic analysis with, you know, a very astute, in-tune approach, knowledge of music? That fusion of those two, you know, this is pop culture, but it's, it's serious at the same time. That's a great question, Jasper. I mean, you know, when I was in graduate school, and I was getting my master's degree you know, there was this whole outpouring of all this writing on hip hop scholar, hip hop scholarship, uh, Trisha Rose, and so many great writers who were, you know, pioneering academic scholarship on hip hop. Some of that writing, though, tended to be, you know, really hard, like jargon filled, right? And like, it would never circulate outside of the academy, even though the content was incredible. And, you know, some of the the thinking in those pieces and those essays and books and, and so on was amazing. It was just, it wouldn't travel. And so while I was doing my graduate degree, I was very much interested in this idea of adopting different voices as a writer that you mm. could write, you know, about hip hop or R and B or any other style of popular music from a scholarly perspective. And there's value in doing so. And in yeah. fact, when you're getting your graduate degree, you have to demonstrate that you have mastered yeah. academic language. That's part of it is just about doing that. And so I, I, I was able to do that and I wanted to do that at the same time. I also knew that I wanted to write for places like vibe and village voice and, you know, blender and all of these magazines that I admired. And so I knew I needed to develop a different kind of writing style for those publications. And I was very explicit about that when I was doing my graduate degree. I would tell my instructors, hey, I just want to let you know, I'm going to be writing in this style for this essay, or I'm going to be writing <laughs> in this style for this you know, scholarly piece. And I think I've managed over the course of my career to be able to do both of those things. Like I still publish scholarly writing and I still do you know, music journalism for different kinds of publications. I was also very much aware that writing for the village voice, you could adopt and use a different kind of voice than you would for vibe, for instance, right? Sure. Like you really have yeah. to understand and know what your audience is. And so I think the development of, of my style, if I can call it that is really, it comes from that, but it's also about serving communities. Like I want to write about music in such a way that people who love that music can appreciate it and can understand what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. And that's important to me. I remember talking to Chuck D once, you know, and asking him, who's your favorite music journalist? And he said, Greg Tate is my favorite journalist. 
And I said, oh, that's awesome. He says, I wish I could understand what he was saying half the time, though. <laughs> and so, you know, I, and I, you know, I, I think he was being tongue in cheek because I think he did understand what Greg Kate is saying. But, you know, there is sometimes this disconnect between how people write about music, especially pop music, and, you know, the music itself and the way in which that music and engages community. And I think you want to be able to write about the significance and power of popular music in a way that the people who love it can also read if possible. Right. Yeah. And so that's where that's, that's kind of how I've thought about style. Yeah, that's fantastic. Jason, you mentioned that voice piece about the download phenomenon. Could you just tell us exactly what download meant um, in the context of sort of homophobia within within hip hop. Sure. So hip hop was still is in some ways a homophobic genre of music. It's not the only one. There's lots of genres of music that are also homophobic <laughs> and transphobic and so on. Mm. Hip hop I think got a bad rap for being more homophobic than other genres and I don't think necessarily that was the case. But certainly in the late 1980s and 1990s there started to become this phenomena that people would describe as the down low. And this basically meant men who were in the closet, um, specifically black men who were in the closet, who were often hiding their identities from their female partners, but were nonetheless having sex with men. And so they were operating on the down low. There was another definition of down low as well that circulated in popular culture and songs by like R. Kelly and TLC Creep, which just basically meant men who were cheating behind their partners and didn't necessarily refer to same-sex activity. But I was interested in the concept of this idea of men who are having same-sex activity and yet also with a female partner who are keeping it from them and why this started to become such an issue in the 1990s and 2000s. Mm -hmm. Part of that had to do with fears about the spread of AIDS. The down low brother, as it was called, was supposedly this person who was like a conduit who was spreading AIDS from gay communities into, into straight communities. That's just like hogwash, right? But nonetheless, that's what a lot of people thought. And so I was walking down the street one day in New York, and I think it was around the time of like gay pride in the summer, and somebody was passing out a flyer, and it said, pride on the DL. So someone was having a party, like a pride party, like come out and be proud to be on the DL, <laughs> to be in the closet. <laughs> and I was just like, hmm, I have to write about this. This is crazy, right? <laughs> and so I was like, I want to know more about what this means. And so I was, I was, I started to then investigate this notion that you know, for some black men, being on the DL is a way of, you know, protecting aspects of your identity when you are facing not just homophobia, but also racism. You end up, you know, not having the choice of being in or out because you don't have the, some of the same social safety nets that your white mm -hmm. peers might have, right? If you're white yeah. and you come out of the closet, it's entirely possible that you may have more safety nets in terms of your access you know, to establishment culture, you know, financially, et cetera. A lot of black and brown, poor and working class men don't have those safety nets. And so had to rethink their relationship to the closet completely, meaning that they could be out to certain people and not out to other people. Like it wasn't just such a clear delineation between in and out. And so I wanted to think about that notion of down low and how it had impacted black culture historically and then also in the contemporary moment. And it has a very profound effect in music as well right, where you have performers like Luther Vandross, 
who was in the closet for most of his, you know, star-studded R&B career, but also kind of out in other ways too, right? Like, you know, <laughs> he, you didn't have to be a genius to know that in, in many ways he was in the closet. And so I wanted to think about that idea of down low black culture and not just think of it as a negative thing or a threat, but to all think of it as a revisionist take on the limitations of the closet as it had been constructed in the imagination by white people largely. It's like an important part of being able to fulfill that R&B superstar role as Luther Vandross. You could, you know, be difficult to be this sex symbol and also be out because, you know, part of the fantasy of the fans is that there's that kind of potential. And if that potential is ruled out by by him being out, then it's not even possible. So it's kind of, you know, there's a there's a sort of straitjacket there that that's difficult to Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the reality is a singer like Luther Vandross, who's a crooner and arguably one of the greatest crooners of all time in R&B music. And I would say the other person there who preceded him as the other great crooner of R&B music would be Johnny Mathis, both of whom are black queer men that we, we know now, but we're not necessarily out in their lifetime. Although Johnny Mathis certainly was never in the closet per se, he, <laughs> you know, right. But, you know, couldn't openly speak about it in the way that we're accustomed to now in culture, hearing people, you know, be out and proud in every aspect. But Luther in the 1980s, 1990s, as he was staging his solo career, I mean, couldn't have been out in any way because the music he was making, yeah, was absolutely seen as constructing these sort of fantasies largely for heterosexuals and particularly for his female fan base. So to be out and to talk about being gay at that time would have been probably death to his career. And I think he very much knew that. But nonetheless, you know, he was not, I would say, fully in the closet either, right? You could just tell from the clothes that he would wear or the sequins and, you know, the kind of affiliation that he had with female singers like Aretha Franklin and Dionne Warwick and so on. These were all clues. If you're in, you know, gay community, mm -hmm. you know what's going on. And those clues are all there to read. And so one of the earliest essays I ever wrote was an essay on Luther Vandross and looking at his sexuality and really thinking about the important role of rumor in the construction of his career and how the use of rumor, especially around his sexuality, was one of the ways that people made assessments about who Luther Vandross was and the, mean, and the meaning of his work in popular culture. And a house is not a home when there's no one there To hold you tight and no one there You can kiss goodnight It's very interesting because I interviewed both Luther Vandross and another artist that you have written about and staged a conference about Sylvester. And so it's making me think about the difference between talking to those two guys, as you can imagine, <laughs> right? I mean, Sylvester was, was so obviously out. That was probably 1982 in San Francisco. And then I did an interview about six years later seven years later, maybe with Luther, actually also in San Francisco when he was performing at the Circle Star. And I just remember feeling this enormous sadness from Luther, which you know, I related from my subjective perception to the, to the fact that he, he could not be out. He could not, he couldn't be honest with me, even though it was obvious to me he was gay. And I guess also, well, Sylvester was probably dead by then. That would have been 1989, and Sylvester, I think, died the year before. Mm -hmm. Tell us just briefly about Sylvester. I mean, as this 
fabulously out performer who we all adore here. And you organized a, a conference, I think, at the Clive Davis Institute, mm-hmm. didn't you, Jason? Yeah, I did. Tell us, tell us about Sylvester and, and what you remember about that conference. Yeah, I mean, Sylvester, I've, I've been a fan of Sylvester for such a long time. I think the, the you know, one of the earliest records I can ever remember listening to was You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. We had it on a KTEL cassette compilation, disco compilation in my house, <laughs> along with Copacabana, you know, Love is in the Air, um, you know, Songs by Hot Chocolate. That was my childhood. But I had no idea who Sylvester was, didn't know if it was a man or a woman, um, I just knew that song and it was like an anthem for me. And so flashback to years later in the 1990s, I really start getting into his discography a lot more and realize that some of the people who are in my kind of musical world, the, the great gospel and R&B singer and session singer, Carl Hall, Martha Wash, Jocelyn Brown, mm-hmm. these are figure, these are people that I know in the 90s who are all associated with Sylvester in some kind of way. And I, I feel like there's something the universe is calling me to around Sylvester in some way. <laughs> hate to put it in those terms, but that that really is what I felt. And so flash forward again to the year 2004, and I am one of the leaders of the Clive Davis Department of Recorded Music. It was a department then on an institute. And I put together a conference, a two-day conference on the life and work of Sylvester. It was scholars, biographers, everyone you could possibly imagine, you know, who uh, had something to say about Sylvester in the NYU space for two days, just talking about all things related to Sylvester. And it ended with a concert featuring that I directed featuring Martha Wash, Billy Porter, Kevin Aviance, a lot of great house music singers like Susu Bobian and others. I performed in the concert myself. And that was just a really important moment on a bunch of different levels. First of all, I don't think anybody had ever done a conference on Sylvester and no one has done one since. It was also a kind of intervention, I think, into the idea of doing public scholarship on an artist like Sylvester. It was amazing to see the kinds of people who were in the audience, just everyday people who had seen Sylvester concerts, who loved Sylvester's music. RuPaul came, sat in the audience. You know, everyone (laughs) was there to learn about, you know, this incredible figure who just, you know, deserves so many more flowers than he ever got during his lifetime. You know, I've done other things on Sylvester since. I've done panel discussions on him. And just this summer, you know, I'm hosting and co-producing a podcast on Sylvester for Spotify. It's called Sound Barrier. It's the first season of a new series called Sound Barrier. And it focuses on the life and work of Sylvester over the course of eight episodes. So it's something I'm really proud of. But all in all, I'll just say Sylvester to me is one of the great... R&B performers mm-hmm. in the 20th century. You know, I think he's underrated as a musician. I think when we look back at the work, he's not just a kind of cultural pioneer, but he's also an incredible musical pioneer. Listening to the work that he did with Patrick Cowley in the 70s, there's nothing else that sounds like that at all. Mm-hmm. I think of it as a correlate to what Georgia Moroder and Donna Summer were doing in some ways. Yeah. And now when we hear those, you know, bustling arpeggios in music, whether we're listening to Robin or whoever else is part of this kind of neo-disco moment that we're in, a lot of that is owed to Sylvester. And I think he was also a pioneer, of course, in the way that he lived his life authentically as an out loud, proud, black femme man in pop music way before that was viable at all, when it was still very much stigmatized. So he opened the door for generations of performers, including Frank Ocean, Lil Nas X, Janelle Monet, and everyone else today who's you know benefiting from the freedom that he helped carve out. 
quite interestingly is that very early on in the days of Rock's Back Pages, we'd send photocopies of articles to be turned into text. And it was Barney's interview with him where I realised that they weren't formatting stuff correctly because I was reading this. And he, he talks in italics. You know, and, <laughs> and, and, and there were no italics in this piece whatsoever. So I went back to the original and he was talking in italics. You know. <laughs> it was a, a key moment. I mean, Also, we on the site, we've got some fantastic stuff that I mentioned the other day, um, Philip Elwood saw Sylvester's San Francisco Opera House show, which has become legendary. And this guy's an old-school jazz critic. He loved it. I mean, it's marvellous. It's it's a really marvellous piece of writing about a marvellous artist, but from a very unlikely source. It's great. (laughs) Fabulous stuff. I need to read that. I haven't seen that, yeah. As a footnote, you can... You can see the original Megatone 12 inch of Do You Want a Funk, which Sylvester gave me that, that 12 inch. Wow. He just received a box of those. And <laughs> as an even sadder footnote, he talked to me about Patrick Cowley and said that he was very ill. And obviously, you know, he was one of the, the, the earliest musicians to die of AIDS. And, and it always haunts me. They didn't, I don't, Sylvester didn't have any terminology for this illness. It was still like mystery illness. We're talking early 1982, if I think I've got the, the sort of timeline correct. Yeah, that's right. But it's so I, you know, when I pulled that out, I just, I just remembered that. And it says, Patrick Cowley featuring Sylvester, you know. Um, <laughs> so I'd forgotten that that's, that's, you know, how it was. And that, so also you you did a version of that as, am I correct in saying you did a version mm. of that as Company Freak, which is your musical moniker. So, which I was listening to with great pleasure over the last yeah. couple of days. Yeah. Really enjoyed that stuff. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for finding it. Yeah. I, I mean, Do You Want to Funk, you know, is that other major Sylvester moment, right? Where he, working with Patrick Cowley, you know, they really uh, help invent and inaugurate this high energy disco sound, which then goes on to influence everything else in the eighties and nineties and beyond. And I think we're still to some degree in that high energy mode. But it's an incredible song, right? It's just like, it's, just pure libido, just exploding out of the speakers. It's in, it's awesome. And I've always loved it. And yeah, I started a band about 10 years ago or so, been on hiatus for the last few years. But my idea with Company Freak was to try to capture the sound, the sophisticated sound of songcraft of the late 70s and 80s, early 80s. Um, so, you know, music of South Soul and Nile Rodgers and Chic and uh, Tume and all of that amazing stuff. And I also wanted music of Company Freak to be a little bit more explicit about the politics of liberation that I think has always Mm -hmm. been encoded in disco and post-disco music of the 80s. And so one of the things I want to do is just cover Do You Want to Funk? So we did this epic, crazy, crazy cover of it. It's great. It's it's, it's a lot of fun. And it's one of the things I love most listening to that. And we we used to do it in concerts, too. And it's really wild. Show 
so cool. I mean, I love Sylvester. I feel like the, the Sylvester conference should be like an annual event. <laughs> it sounds like it was brilliant. I mean, it just sounds, you know. I appreciate it. And, and you're that. right. I mean, he was so, so important and doesn't really, you know, doesn't really get the multidisciplinary appreciation that he should. Yeah, he did not. And it's because of the stigmas of the music industry and of culture. And, it's you know, it's it's because of structural exclusion. And now we're at a moment in which people are being celebrated for doing some of the same things that he did, you know, back in the late 1970s or even the early 1970s when he was with yeah. his hot band doing all kinds of, you know, interesting eccentric rock and roll. I mean, he was just a, a figure who was out of his time, frankly, and ahead of his mm-hmm. time. I remember when I first like read about him, I was like, was this really true? Was he really doing this in the seventies? Like it's such, so contra to what the, my perception of that time period is in a kind of retrospective way that I was just like, is this like a misprint? Is this like a typo for the date? Like- <laughs> Another great thing we've got on the site is Lillian Roxon, the great Lillian Roxon, uh, was one of the few New Yorkers to take kindly to the coquettes. When the Coquettes went to New York, she wrote a very, very approving write-up about them. And in fact, in reading his biography, his fairly recent biography that came out, and it turned out that he was thoroughly rejected by the New York kind of R&B establishment. So, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I mean, the Coquettes were trashed when they came to New York. They, yeah. were the, they were the most radical performance art group possible in, in you know, the Bay Area. But when they made their move to New York, I mean, people, a different standard, right? And they were held to this higher standard of performance in New York. And uh, mm-hmm. people like Rex Reed, I mean, really, really just said they are not for New York. <laughs> but people love Sylvester. And, and it was clear that Sylvester was, you know, doing something totally yeah. different. Yeah, he yeah. was connecting back to this larger history of, the blues and jazz. He imagined himself as a jazz woman, you know, called Ruby, Miss Ruby Blue from like the mid-1920s. That was what his image was prior to the moment in which disco was invented, which then became his conduit to have uh, mainstream success. Right, right. I wanted to mention just one other piece we have on RBP, which we're going to, which is going to be the long read on the homepage. And it's it's a piece called Gay Soul from... 1975 Black Music Magazine by the great Tony Cummings. And it's sort of apropos the release of Valentino's almost infamous I Was Born This Way, which I remember <laughs> reading about. I must have been like 15 or thing, just thinking, wow, that's so brave to like, like an, an, an overtly gay record like that, which obviously Lady Gaga later kind of adapted to her own, her own needs, Born This Way. <laughs> but Tony goes right back to kind of Harlem in the 20s and writes about this fascinating character called Frankie Halfpint Jackson, who was very out in the 1920s. And there's another act called Charlie and Ray. So he sort of goes all the way through, indeed, to Sylvester and mentions Sylvester. There's not a lot about Sylvester in that. And it's, it's pre-Mighty Real, obviously. But it's, it's really a yeah. fascinating piece. I mean, I, I mean, there is an argument. I, I don't know. Have there already been written some histories of, of black gays, of being gay in black America. Because reading R.J. Smith's fascinating book about Los Angeles and about the Central Avenue, and he opens your eyes to a world which we never, in this side of the pond, never knew existed. You hear about all these clubs off Central Avenue, Avenue where people like Charles Brown would play, which is mm. very much the, that sort of scene. But fascinating subject, which you know I know far too little about. Yeah, there's a lot of great writing on you know black gay history and culture mm-hmm. and black gay kind of world making, even in the context of black music, there's, there is work to be found. It's just that these histories have been so hidden 
right? So, yeah. you know, or they've been really piecemeal. Like there's lots of great writing about, for instance, all the black queer blues women, whether we're talking about Bessie Smith right. or Ma yeah. Rainey, et cetera. Mama Thornton, yeah. Mama Thornton, looking at, you know, jazz, Billy Strayhorn and others, even mm-hmm. the rise of R&B, looking at uh, people like Billy Wright or Esquerita, obviously Little Richard, sure. um, a trans artist like Jackie Shane. I'm not, I don't know that there's been a single you know, volume that has dealt with this larger history and really connected all of the dots. And I think that work uh-huh. still needs to be done. And maybe now we're at a moment when, when that can be done. But sure. to me, it was fascinating looking at Tony Cummings' work and going back through Rock's Back Pages and just seeing something like that and just being reminded, you know, that these hidden histories have their own histories, right? Yes. Like people, ha- people have been writing about this. We just need to, you know, claim some of that work and really yeah. think about it as part of a lineage. Yeah. Another Tony, of course, Tony Heilbert wrote that amazing essay, The Gospel Sissy. I remember him talking to R. Smart when we, when yes. we first went to New York in, in search of writers and, and Tony talking about that. And that, that's a fascinating piece. And I think it's in his book, The Fan Who Knew Too Much. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we're talking of raging fans as we were, we were earlier. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, but sort of just to sort of pick up from the whole concept of the closet, I wanted to talk briefly about Freddie Mercury with you, because I think you're still at work on a, on this biography, aren't you? And yes, I'm fascinated to know what your first inkling of, you know, this extraordinary guy who, I mean, he was sort of, as we often say, he's sort of hiding in plain sight as, as a gay man. Right? I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, the name of the act, uh, it's sort of like in case you missed it. I mean, so tell me how, where, how and when you became interested in Freddie and thought about writing a biography, Jason. Yeah, I've never not been interested in Freddie Mercury and Queen. Growing up, we had, you know, an eight track of the game. My brother used to play it all the time. Another <laughs> one bites the dust was like the roller skating jam, you know, for me. Yeah. I mean, don't tell chic, but uh, it, you know, it was, <laughs> it was like, that was the zenith of roller skating jams. And uh, so I've always been fascinated by him. I started teaching at uh, New York University's Abu Dhabi campus in the United Arab Emirates in about 2010. And I was teaching a class on cosmopolitanism and popular culture, looking at figures who imagine themselves as being beyond the nation state, people who are kind of global figures, transnational figures, post-colonial figures. I was thinking about artists I wanted to discuss in that class, people like Bob Marley and Grace Jones and others. And I thought, why don't I talk about Freddie Mercury? Because it seems that, no, you know, his, he's, he's obviously considered one of the great legends of rock music, but so few people know about his background, right? They don't even understand the fact that he was born and raised in East Africa off the mm-hmm. coast of Tanzania in Zanzibar. And if they do even know that, you know, tidbit of information, they don't really connect it to any of the music that he made later on in life. It's almost like a blip in his biography. And actually, when the Bohemian Rhapsody film, the music biopic came out, you know, they don't even cover the first 17 years of his life when he lived in East Africa. (laughs) They just skip past it and you just start when he's 17. I can't imagine that for any other artist of, you know, a peer artist like David Bowie. It doesn't really matter if he's from the UK, right? You can't, you can't picture other people's biographies being elided like that and missing, you know, a huge portion. So what I wanted to do was to write a biography of Freddie Mercury that would account for the many closets that he existed in <laughs> while he was a performer, right? So I think he existed in at least four different kind of interrelated closets. He was closeted about his ethnicity. He's Parsi, Indian, mm-hmm. but, you know, born and raised in Zanzibar. And there's a whole, you know, 
East Asian community in Zanzibar, in East Africa, that's really important to discuss where that comes from. So he's closeted about his ethnicity, closeted about his racial heritage, closeted about his national background, closeted about his sexuality, of course. And by the mid 80s, he was even closeted about his AIDS diagnosis, but yet continued to make music while he had AIDS. And some of that music is, is really incredible. And, you know, if you know how to read it, there are lots of clues and signs there. So I wanted to write about this performer who existed in these multiple closets and yet was flamboyant, was out, changed the conversation on sexuality in many ways. And I, I really wanted to kind of reframe Freddie Mercury's identity in a contemporary language to think of him as a non-normative or queer immigrant of color who was born and raised in the so-called third world, the developing world, East Africa and India, and specifically in a kind of you know post-independence moment. Right. So this figure who represents all of this liberation and freedom came out of this moment of liberation and freedom in Africa and India. And, you know, he moved to the UK as a teenager, basically, you know, went into the closet in a certain kind of way or never really came out of the closet. But he in the UK, I think he refashioned himself as a rock star at a really important moment because that's what allowed him to be able to be hiding in plain sight, Barney, as you say. And so, you know, I think of the story of Freddie Mercury as a story that basically challenges this idea that the archetypal rock front man is white, Western and straight. And really, when you look at the history of rock music, it's, you know, <laughs> Little Richard and folks like that who influence the Elvises and the Bowies and the Jaggers and everybody else. Um, it's the, you know, sister Rosetta Tharps, yes. you know, who are queer, who also do a lot of the, you know, have a lot of influence as well. And so there's an entire queer POC history of rock and roll that is hidden in plain sight itself. And I think Freddie Mercury illuminates that. So thinking about Freddie Mercury as a teenager in boarding school in India in, you know, the 1950s, having a Little Richard cover band called the Hectics, <laughs> you know, not just covering Little Richard music, but other rock music as well. But like being a Little Richard fan, I mean, we have to deconstruct that and figure out what that is and how that happens and what that means, right? And what, yes. what that means for pop culture. Yeah, it is fascinating. And it was something I learned from this piece that we're going to feature on the homepage, which is a pretty savage piece you wrote for Pitchfork in February 2019 about Bohemian Rhapsody, the film. And I'm just going to quote one paragraph from your piece. The film also troublingly reduces Mercury's veiled bisexuality and fudges the timing of his 80s AIDS diagnosis to spin a cliched, tragic queer quote-unquote narrative by painting him as the self-alienated queer whose narcissistic choices led him to nearly destroy Queen the film has little to tell us about Mercury's interior life or his phenomenal performance of masculinity as drag on <laughs> sly songs like Crazy Little Thing Called Love, which helped to re-sculpt the gender and sexual conventions of stadium rock. I mean, that borders on rockademic writing and terminology, uh, doesn't <laughs> it? But, but it's brilliant. I think it's such a, it's it such a brilliant, brilliant insight because it's, it really nails what, what I always found so fascinating about Freddie. The thing that stags me, you know, talking about hiding in plain sight, I spent the late 70s living just about two streets south of the Earl's Court Road, which was the gay community in London at that time. I recognised the look, and I took one look at Freddie Mercury and just immediately assumed he was gay. I didn't understand why there was any confusion in anyone's mind. I mean, he was like the men you saw walking up and down the Earl's Court Road Every evening. But I guess if you didn't have that context, you wouldn't know that. And then, you know, the other part of it is that 
you know, he came of age as a performer, you know, through glam. I mean, I, you know, I think yeah, Night yeah. at the Opera yes. is kind of like at the end, yeah. tail end of glam, but he came through glam and glam was this, you know, interesting moment in, in UK music where UK and US music where, you know, you could be a straight man and put on a dress and wear makeup and yes. get away with it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think he took advantage of the opportunity that was laying there right in front of him this, in this sort of post-Bowie, post-T-Rex sure. world to be able to play with sexuality. Think of somebody like Tim Curry, right, in like Rocky Horror Picture Show, I think, you know, which comes out <laughs> the same year as Night of the yes. Opera. Like it's, it's a moment in which people are playing with sexuality and he's yeah, also yeah. playing with sexuality. So people were like, I don't know what this is. And, you know, when you go back and read something like the video for a crazy little thing called Love, I mean, that's, that's audacious, that's radical. That's really <laughs> yes, yes. bold, right? He's like, yeah. I'm just going yeah, to own yeah. this moment, you know, take it over. So it's fascinating. A fascinating career, a fascinating human being. I love this piece that, I mean, to give it its full title, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody is now the biggest music biopic ever. It's also total bullshit, which is, <laughs> which is just great. I mean, I, I loved reading this and it really, I'm actually grateful to have read it because it gets to the heart of the problems with the film. Like it's an uncomfortable watch in a way because it was billed as this like, you know, great entertaining, you know, and it is fun. It is, it is yeah. you know, and Rami Malek is great in it, which yes. you acknowledge in the piece as well. But like, it's, you know, glossing over his sexuality and sanitizing it and making it fit that narrative that, that Barney read that quote about. I mean, which also fits in a kind of queer as villain narrative, like is in film. So I mean, like James Bond kind of tying with Rami Malek, James Bond movies, the villains are all, gay or coded as queer coded as queer and it's it's all getting that and, it, and so you managed to articulate incredibly powerfully this problem with reducing the value of culture to just being a matter of entertainment which is such an infuriating thing because people then can go oh well you know but it was fun yeah which is kind of like a bit yeah. you know well mo look let's face enough. it most music biopics are not very good for me personally, <laughs> well, no, no, they don't really cap. They don't capture I mean, the essence. Or, them, yeah, I mean, they don't capture the essence, the power, the significance of the artist. They don't really get into the nuances of how the music was made. But this one seemed particularly audaciously, you know, corrupt <laughs> in terms of its narrative because it, you know, it really like when you get to the eighties. I mean. Everyone in Queen, all those guys released their solo albums, right? Like there's a Brian May solo album. There's a, you know, like Roger has his solo album. So it's not like Freddie was like the one to break away and go solo and like destroy the band. So I think just even on a, just telling the story, the true narrative, and I understand, you know, music biopics take license with history, but there's a difference between taking license with history and just really like smudging over, <laughs> you know, important, important details, facts. Key important facts. facts yeah, details. exactly. It's a post facts yeah, yeah. movie. It's a post facts movie for a post facts. Movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Welcome, oh, welcome dear. to our world. Yeah. Exactly. Should we talk about someone who was never in the closet for one second? And that's the great George O'Dowd, known more familiarly as Boy George. And Mark is going to tell us about this week's audio interview. Yeah, this is Bill Brewster interviewing Boy George in January of 2002, around the time of the Taboo stage show. 
which George was very much involved, co-wrote and so on and so forth. So they talk about that, but they also look back at the 80s about the roots of, of glam in the, the New Romantics, how glam was critical, which is goes back to actually very much what we, we were talking about. He talks about the people involved, how, how Philip Salon dressed and so on and so forth. Let's listen to the first clip. He, I mean, he talks about reactionary gaze and the issues he had and also about how he had no desire to be assimilated. Let's have a listen to this. I think there's a kind of, there, there's an element of gay culture that, doesn't like anybody to be too flamboyant and too outspoken because it's ruining their bid for respectability. Yeah. And um, that doesn't concern me in the slightest because I don't feel any desire to be assimilated. I mean, I know that people look back at me in the 80s and think, oh, you know, I was a kind of clown charming the pants off the establishment and I was sort of, you know, really trying... I was, in a way, I wanted people to like me. But that a lot of that was to do with growing up in, a, in an environment that told me there was something wrong with me. Yeah, yeah. So as I grew up, I kind of bought into that. Yeah. But at a certain point, I realised that actually I didn't have to buy into that and that I could be who I wanted to be. Yeah, and yeah. that happened around 15, discovering Ziggy Stardust and, and, and you know yeah. pop music and that sense of rebellion. And, and that was what was great about punk. He talks about being a survivor of the 80s. He talks about still being friends with people like Steve Strange. He talks about Lee Bowery, who's the, essentially the subject of, of Taboo. He talks about hating being thought of as a pantomime dame. Let's have a listen to this clip. This is about how people perceive him now. There are gay people who refer to me as a kind of pantomime dame, which... I find quite offensive because, you know, I think in my own way, I'm quite outspoken about <coughs> what I feel and what I am. I'm as far away from Danny LaRue as we are from Mars. Mm-hmm. So I find that insulting and it's probably one of the things that aggravates me the most. But I think it's the price you pay for having, you know, a style. Yeah. You know, if you dress up... Then do, you, do you think part of that is because you've always kind of refused to become a kind of a mouthpiece for... For gay people generally. Well, you know, I talk about it in in, in the way that I feel fit. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't talk about it in the way that say Peter Tatchell would. Yeah. Although I have a lot of respect for him, and Peter Tatchell is as hated a man yeah. in the gay community as I can be. Yeah. You know, and I find that weird. I find it weird that gay people would be like that towards him because I think it, in his heart, what he wants to do is really positive and. And, and good for everyone. Which is very interesting and talks about the tensions within the gay community, which have already existed, but the homosexual community doesn't really notice because, you know, seeing gay people as a single monolithic block, which is, of course, utter rubbish. He talks about wanting more respect for his songwriting, that he, he feels that 
right through from Culture Club onwards. And everyone assumed that he was effectively just the singer of the song rather than the person actually generating him. He is a songwriter. He alludes to his, his drug past and he says, you know, he doesn't moralize about drugs. Uh, th- this is in relation to what he had become at this point, which is more a DJ than a performer. So he talks a lot about clubs and DJing, about DJing to, the question was, do you mind playing records to, a bunch of kids all on drugs, and he said, you know, it's none of his business, and he has no objection to it. He talks about going to the Paradise Garage, which is very interesting. Paradise Garage is a place where a lot of English acts visiting New York would, would go to. Is it interesting, Jason, is that we, I saw your interview with David Nathan, uh, who's a, an old friend of Rock's Back Pages. In fact, I was around his place getting a whole bunch of copies of his magazine just the other day, and he's him talking about going to Paradise Garage a lot, which is was fascinating for me. One of the great regrets in my life is I never got to go to the Paradise Garage. He talks about his relationship with fame. He's, he's funny about his dealings with Malcolm McLaren, which go back to the Bow Wow Wow days. He's interesting about that. And becoming a DJ and all the kind of stuff about you know, not being a technical DJ, but being a guy who had a good sense of the room and so on and so forth. At the end of the, the podcast, we'll go out with a, a very amusing audio where he talks about having brunch with Joni Mitchell which is not the first thing which comes to mind. But it's, it's a good, he's such an articulate and interesting guy. I mean, you know, he's been caricatured really, you know, falsely by so many people. But, and, you know, yeah, he is, he, he, you know, he's a temperamental old queen, as he himself, I'm sure, would describe himself. <laughs> but but he, he, he's, he's an interesting guy. I have a lot of time for him, I must say. Jason, do you remember Culture Club having their, you know, more than 15 minutes of pop fame in America and how you responded to Boy George as as this sort of iconic pop figure? Absolutely. I mean, that first Culture Club album, I had it on cassette. And I mean, I think I wore that thing out because for me, it was the it was the. I don't even, you know, with the first album, I don't remember the visuals for George so much. I just remember mm-hmm. the music and, you know, songs like I'll Tumble For You and so on. It, they were just like a really curious sort of like MTV era mix of, you know, reggae and this kind of like punk and pop that I just hadn't heard necessarily before. So I, I loved that music. And then when the big album came out, and I'm forgetting the name of it. Color, Color uh, by Numbers. Color by Numbers. When Color by Numbers, I mean, that was the one that was like their big, you know, kind of yes. moment. And I loved, I loved George. I just thought his voice was fantastic. I'd never seen anybody like him exactly. But it was also the era where, you know, as famously James Baldwin wrote about for Playboy, like it was an era of androgyny, right? So it was an era mm-hmm. where like artists like Pete Burns, Dead or Alive, it's hard to now believe Pete Burns got away with what he got away with in the 80s, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so many others, you know, playing with identity and so on. So I thought of George as kind of like a leader in that, but certainly not the only only one. But I was always, what I always loved about George was his voice itself, mm. right? The quality, the timbre of his voice, the sonority of it. I mean, it just didn't sound like anybody else. And he could do ballads, he could do the up-tempo stuff. I love songs like Miss Me Blind. I mean, I think that's just one of the great, like, you know, R&B pop songs of <laughs> the 80s. I got to interview George in 2006 with Karen Finley, the radical performance art figure. Oh, um, wow. We, yeah, we both teach at NYU and Karen was like, you know, do you want to interview George with me on stage? And so we got, we got to like have this great conversation. And I remember asking him about how he felt about the fact that so many people in the 80s in particular saw him as a kind of accessible figure, you know, who was could be wearing drag and could, you know, 
dressed in this sort of femme way, but yet accessible. And, you know, he pushed back against that. Sounds like in the same way that he pushes back in this interview. But I asked him, I said, like, what would be the opposite of a gay, accessible pop star? And he's like, and he said, maybe a high maintenance homosexual. He said, and I said, who's that? And he said, <laughs> Elton John. That was his thing. <laughs> I'll never forget. Oh, that's that's, that's obviously wonderful. I, I met George long before he was famous in about, 1980 or 80, early 81, maybe when he was just playing George O'Dowd. And I think he, he had a sort of loosely had a group called In Praise of Lemmings. And I talked to him for quite a long time and really, really liked him, but just sort of thought this is just a kind of scenester. This is just like a guy who used to go to Blitz and it just hangs around with, 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 with all these sort of Soho characters. And then I was sort of amazed when he kind of, you know, emerged as this sort of full, fully fleshed pop star about probably 18 months later. I love those early, I mean, they made about five classic singles, didn't they really? They're just gorgeous records. One of the things he talks about the, about his songwriting is that Karma Chameleons are very much his song and how the rest of the band dismissed it. It was pretty much the last thing they recorded for that album became probably their biggest hit of, of all, I mean, you know, he was he, he was a product of his time and his scenes, a, a whole series of squats around King's Cross in London. And it was the home of, of a whole bunch of people. And again, in the interview, he talks very interestingly about how there were two groups. There were the art school people and there were the, the working class people, gay and straight, all sort of living and working together. And it, it was basically when one of them went out with someone, a man went out with a woman from the other side of this particular set of tracks was when the sort of the whole movement coalesced and the arts, the art, the arty people and the working class people sort of got together and blitz and billies and all that sort of stuff followed from that. Really interesting stuff. It is. And I mean, the courage of the guy, it's, it's, you know, what I found myself thinking when I listened to the audio was, you know, it's one thing to, to be dressed like Boy George at Blitz in the West End. But you, you, you have to remember that he used to have to come in, you know, at a certain point. He used to come in on the bus from sort of Eltham, you know, <laughs> dressed to the nines. And that that's courageous. And he alludes to just how frightening that was. And he'd slink down at the back of the bus mm-hmm. so that, you know, another you know, none of the yobs could, could see him and, and, and beat him up, you know? So I think he is a courageous figure. Yeah. And I mean, he is now a sort of national treasure, yeah. isn't he? He's, he's... <laughs> he, he was, he was also probably one of the first people to sort of where the nexus of the tabloid press and popular culture really got going. Yes. And he was like, in a sense, the first victim of the likes of the sun and so on and so forth as newspapers who, who, saw in him as an endless story to an endless source of entertainment for their straight mostly white readership you know yeah. it was it was yeah, yeah it was the early days of that yes it still surrounds us miss me i know you miss me i know you miss me beloved i, I know
Jason, we'd like to ask you a bit about Beyonce, who has just released her album Renaissance. And I know you've already weighed in on this very eloquently with Anne Powers and Leticia Harris, which I was reading this morning. You kindly sent us the link to that yesterday on NPR. And you've written about Beyonce. One of the the pieces that we're featuring is, is this great piece, Activism, Identity Politics and Pop's Great Awakening, which also is from pitchfork in 2019 and you talk about her lemonade album you talk about kendrick and d'angelo and, and so forth that, that's a great piece and you also referred us to a piece about beyonce's movie career her her various roles in various films and what that's told us about beyonce i mean where do we start she's like almost like the biggest star on the planet and i'm too old to really talk about Beyonce. I like so much of her music. Can never be tell, told. Tell us how you're looking at Beyonce from from the perspective of 2020 and in the light of this new of this new album, Jason. Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, the piece that I did for Pitchfork was a kind of decade summary of the changes that had happened in 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 pop music as it relates to politics. So, looking at this huge turn towards civic and political engagement for pop stars, just going back to the Dixie Chicks in the early 2000s, basically being canceled by the music industry and mm-hmm. by many of yeah. their fans for speaking out against then President George Bush, all the way, you know, flash forward to someone like Cardi B who's, you know, up there on on Twitter every night with Bernie Sanders and like explicitly political. So there's obviously been a major shift and a major change in the way that people think about the role of pop stars in conveying, you know, political efficacy. And so Beyonce is really at the center of that, I think, in the the 2010s, because she, as a solo artist who'd been around since the early 2000s, you know, she went political and she uh, suddenly started releasing music that was very much in conversation with issues around feminism, issues around Black Lives Matter. Her music became a kind of soundtrack to the rising Black Lives Matter movement of the 2010s. And then she releases 2016's Lemonade, which is, I think, one of the great albums of the decade, critically acclaimed, commercially acclaimed as well. And in that very complex piece of work, right, it's a musical film, it's an album, it's a poetry chapbook, it's like a bunch of different things happening at the same time. But it is very much attuned to some of those changes that I was just talking about in popular culture. And it's an album that's deeply confessional. It's very much about her marriage and the trauma that happened in her marriage and how she has to develop the resilience to overcome it. So the whole album is is structured in terms of stages of overcoming trauma. So it's operating at a personal is political level, but it's also operating at a political is political level because it's also talking about community trauma and specifically black trauma in the age of Black Lives Matter and female trauma in the age of, of Me Too as well and connecting and linking all of those dots. So she emerges alongside Kendrick Lamar, alongside figures like Frank Ocean and others as one of the kind of leading voices of politics in in, in popular music in the 2010s. And again, flash forward up to the release of Renaissance, which is her um, first kind of full solo album since 2016's Lemonade, although she's had some amazing projects in between. And Renaissance is a very different album. It's an album that you're supposed to listen to, not necessarily view or watch. It's not a, there are not a lot of videos tied, there are no videos tied to it at this point. And it's a kind of turn for her because it's not a political record necessarily in terms of like explicit politics. There's no protest music on there necessarily. But you could also argue that the whole thing is political because it is an attempt 
to honor and illuminate the history of the Black LGBT club space as a, not just a sanctuary, but a space in which all kinds of liberatory possibilities existed. So she's done her homework and she's included figures from the 70s like Donna Summer, you know, by the way, samples, uh, Grace Jones is on there doing yes. a current vocal. Nile Rogers is on there on a track with Nile playing guitar and Raphael yeah, Cuff Sadiq. It. Cuff, Cuff It is great. Isn't That's it? Yeah, a hot lovely, track, lovely. you know. Yeah, hot, very hot. Track. It's very hot. There's a James Brown's apples, Tina Marie. There's all kinds of then all the '90s figures are in there, and so it's basically I, I likened it in the piece that I wrote to a album of historical black music research on the level or in the spirit of Quincy Jones' Back on the Block from 1989, uh, Neo Soul, the Masters at Work produced album from the mid 1990s. That was also this kind of like transnational compendium of people of color dance music styles over the years. So Renaissance is, is fantastic and a very unusual album for Beyonce. And it's also engendered all these cultural debates, which is what you come to expect from a figure like Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> We've added three, well, featuring Frida Reed on the homepage, three pieces, including your piece about her movie career. And one of them is a Destiny's Child piece, Precious Williams for the Evening Stand in 2001, which sort of goes into the sort of personnel changes and just sort of slight friction and the sense that she, she sort of addresses that notion that that Beyonce is sort of, you know, thrusting herself to the front of the stage and all of that stuff. I mean, I do remember Destiny's Child pretty well, but I mean, my God, what Beyonce has done. I mean, independent women was, was such, was such a sort of, you know, signal of where she was going to, going to be going. Right. And I mean, but what she has done, I mean, is, is quite extraordinary, you know, and I still haven't got my head around her, her sort of, collected oeuvre jasper what is your i mean i know you're a fan what is your take on beyonce yeah absolutely i mean i i love destiny's child as well i think there are some just great pop records in that yeah. but i i appreciate the way that she's managed to kind of go from that it is interesting to think about what you were saying earlier jason which is that there's this kind of she gets started in an era when you can't be political and be a pop star in a way that certainly has changed now and I wanted to touch on something that you in, in that essay, Activism, Identity Politics and Pop's Great Awakening and Pitchfork a few years ago that you brought up, which is the flip side is that those the, the most successful artists are not likely to upset, disrupt or criticize the capitalist system that's facilitated their success. You know, even if that system is trapping some of the audience, they need to thrive in dead end wage labor or insurmountable poverty. And I think that that for me is a really because, you know, we have all these intersectional ideas of like, how do we navigate? sexuality and gender and race but there's a kind of problem which is capitalism and this american dream which is so often heralded in pop music is a fundamentally capitalist dream and the idea of making it is still a huge deal and you, you talk about jay-z in that article about how you know he's still kind of glorifying his own ability to make himself a billionaire which is you know it's his right to be proud of what he's achieved because it's amazing what he's achieved. But at the same time, it's difficult to address that dichotomy of like, well, making it is making it on the terms of capitalism. And that's still going to leave behind. It's going to make it at somebody else's expense, ultimately. And I think that's, I don't know, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts, 
on that and on what you know how does music and how does how does anyone kind of grapple with that yeah i mean i think it's you know we talk about race and racism and gender and sexual orientation national background uh, ableism but we just don't talk a lot about class. <laughs> it's like a blind spot, yeah. especially when it comes to pop music. And part of it is because pop music is distributed by a system, right? A, you, you know, a profit-based system for the most part. And people are not going to criticize the system that is the, you know, the means of delivery of their music. And also, of course, in the age of branding, when so many people are not making money from their recorded music, but from branding deals, deals in which they've entered into with, you know, entertainment brands, they don't want to upset the Apple card. They don't want to like ruin their opportunity to actually, you know, generate revenue. So I think it's a huge blind spot in pop music. And I think Beyonce, you know, she has promoted a kind of fantasy around capitalist accumulation, which is really, really problematic, especially when you look at how progressive the rest of her music is. I think she's made a little bit of a turn with this new album. Maybe the, the first track on that girl has all of these lyrics about how, um, she's kind of shucking off the trappings of materialism, you know, being more into the spirit and love rather than just making money. She says she's throwing Basquiat's off the wall. Famously, no, she took, she and uh, her uh, husband, Jay-Z, own Basquiat's. So, you know, there may be a turn that's happening as part of this trilogy that's coming because Renaissance is just part one of two other albums that are due in, in stores. So I, I think, you know, it's a, it's a strange moment in which, more and more young people are interested in alternatives outside of capitalism, socialism, right? Really thinking about ways of existing outside of the, you know, the current economic structure, which has failed so many people and immiserated so many others. And you see that happening in politics in the US and the UK and so many other places, but not necessarily happening that much in music, right? It still remains this kind of space for, you know, capitalist fantasy. And so it'll be interesting to see in the next five to 10 years, if what's happening in a kind of populist way around the rise of a kind of democratic socialism can find its way into popular music more. Yeah, it's interesting that what you're saying, potentially, this is the first album in a, in, you know, kind of a turn of, of that approach. But the idea of this kind of like, freeing oneself from material shackles is like it's all well and good a when you when you can afford to do all that and and live a live a good and happy life but also it's a very individualistic approach to liberation from capitalism i suppose it's like like how you know kendrick's most recent album is a lot about eckhart toller and, and, and it's all about this like personal responsibility for liberation and it's it's an interesting and again complicated one because on the one hand it's important to empower people to make a change for the better for them. But on the other hand, it's important to make it clear that it's not your fault if you can't empower yourself. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not on you to just take responsibility for, for the situations that have led to where you are. So it's, yeah, it's fascinating. And it's, I'm really interested to see where she goes next with that. Yeah, we're in an interesting moment where people, you know, pop stars who are uh, worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and in some cases, mm -hmm. you know, they're billionaires singing sure, to us yeah, about, singing to the working class about liberation. And, you know, listening to Beyonce's new song, Break My Soul, you know, talk about, you know, I just left my job. I mean, Beyonce has not had a nine to five job ever. I think, <laughs> right? And probably never will need to apply for one. I think we can confidently say. I don't think you have to sign on for universal credit. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very, it's, you know, we are in interesting times in this respect, because I think things like the, the COVID epidemic has made us reinvestigate collective 
activity and behavior. And it's very interesting when you get people, again, hugely over well paid, like Marcus Rashford, the football, Manchester United footballer, who became one of the strongest critics of the Boris Johnson government and their behavior during the pandemic. And it's very easy to attack them. You're wealthy, you know, it's easy, it's easy for you. But I think it's important that that that, that people do stand up. Definitely, it's too easy Definitely. just just to mock mock them and, and sneer at them. And, and yeah, we're it's an it's interesting times. So, I mean, we 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 we've had a succession of strongman type leaders in, around the world, whether it's Trump or whether it's Bolsonaro or, or so on. And that that uh, maybe extended exposure to these people is changing the way we're all regarding the political class. And so, who knows where this thing's going to work out? I mean, the vote in Kansas yesterday for allowing abortion is this was an extraordinary moment. A conservative state voting sixty percent to retain abortion services in Kansas. That, you know, is a massive political moment, I think. We were talking about the entertainment industry and the capitalist system of the music business. And it's actually, it's a perfect moment to pay tribute to one of the great <laughs> grandees of the American record industry, yeah. Mo Austin, who, who died two days ago. I was going to ask you, Jason, given your relationship with Clive Davis and the foundation of the Clive Davis Institute. So you, you have rubbed shoulders with moguls and <laughs> I don't know if you ever crossed Mo Austin's path or where, where you stand on the great Mo Austin. I did meet him once uh, at a Clive Davis Grammy party and I was just kind of fanning out. I don't know that how many people would fan out to Mo Austin, but I was like, <laughs> I was like, Mo Austin, I can't believe you're here. Um, I and so he was quite uh, shocked that I think, you know, that I was uh, responding to him in that way. But look, I mean, you know, in terms of the great quote unquote record men and, you know, specifically most of them have been men historically, you know, he stands at the top. I mean, him, Clive, Barry Gordy, there's, you know, Seymour mm -hmm. Stein, there's just like a handful of figures who have ever been that influential and who have ever executed their work at that you know, that level of quality, sustained quality over time. I think what he did at Warner Reprise is unparalleled. I mean, when you look at the list of artists um, that he helped shepherd into the industry, there's nobody else really like that except for someone like a Clive, right? Who's, you know, also yeah. had that, you know, that profound career that's almost too difficult to like summarize because it's, it's so <laughs> vast and expansive. So, you know, Mo will be missed. And I think, you know, his death also highlights the reality that the contemporary music industry, you know, it's missing some stuff, right? It's missing, it, you know, record men. It's missing record men. I say women, men, all people, women. All yeah. women. Yeah. I mean, Barney and I were talking about this in the office yesterday, is is that the idea of a Mo Austin, the idea of Chris Blackwell's Island Records, it's almost impossible now in terms of the major labels. Yes, they exist Places like XL Records and so on and so forth. There's some really good people. But when it comes to the majors, the great record man is gone. Yeah. yeah. And some people would welcome the end of that, right? Because, <laughs> you know, they also, let's, I mean, we shouldn't romanticize it. They also, you know, were involved in lots of really, you know, 
for lack of a better word, complex and maybe even shady dealings. You know, <laughs> let's just say this. There's been a history of disadvantageous contracts between labels and artists and sure. so on, historically. Sure. And, you know, Mo's yeah, yeah. Mo a part of that too. And I think people are looking for a new and kind of revitalized music industry in which more people, more diverse people are able to participate. More women should be at the top of labels, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. non-binary folks, trans folks, et cetera. So I think we need to enter into a new era, but yet not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Sorry for that method. Yeah. You say all of that, but this is a time when people get paid virtually nothing for the streaming of their music on the main things. So it's it's actually a terrible time for artists. Absolutely. You may say that these people gave people bad record contracts, but they gave them contracts and gave them four or five albums to make. You know, I think we're in a really, really bad place at the moment. I think it kind of comes hand in hand with like, in a way, the death of the label. I mean, it's there. obviously there are like three labels that exist now that are like major in that way that can just can just throw money at at a project without thinking about it and then i think that's different to how it was before when you know marston like the label had an identity and had an approach and had a had a feel and a vibe and everything and i think without that you end up you know well you need to find other ways other ways to group music other ways to bring communities together you know that facilitate musical exchange because i think at the moment, it's difficult to break into that. Yeah, well, I think we're in a very fractured moment, obviously. And it's a very mm-hmm. different moment than, let's say, the 70s or, or 80s. But I, I also think the thing that we're missing now is just uh, a real genuine commitment on the part of industry to artist development. Right. That's sure. just not happening at labels in the way that it used to happen. Um, this, you know, Mark, you were just saying like four or five albums, like mm-hmm. artists don't even have the chance anymore to do four or five albums, right. To sure. do really develop themselves. And so, you know, Mo Austin, one album. not yet, <laughs> a one single, and then it's it, you know, if yeah. it doesn't hit. So I think Mo Austin represents a moment in the music industry, in the 20th century music industry in particular, in which there was this steadfast commitment to artist development and people knew the tools of how to do that very, yeah. very well. And, that's what's missing so we have you know red hot off the press as it were a mo austin audio interview that was done about four years ago ben merlis son of warner brothers legend bob merlis contacted us yesterday and so i interviewed mo for my book about cold chilling records rap label bmg published in 2019 and so we thought we would just feature a kind of uh, sneak preview or pre-listen a clip from this audio which we'll be adding next week so jasper could you just play us mo What was your impression of rap music when you first became aware of it? I had very little awareness of it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I, 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 I couldn't get myself into it. I mean, you have to remember, I started with a jazz label. Yeah. Uh, then there was the Sinatra period where we were dealing with uh, music that was mainly adult-oriented. Yeah. And, of course, we had the problem of Sinatra prohibiting us from making any kind of deals in rock and roll or contemporary music. But that didn't last very long, did it? Well, I mean, we were struggling. And I went to him and I said, Frank, <laughs> unless we get into rock and roll, we're not going to be competitive and we're not going to be able to survive. So you got the case. And to his credit, his business instincts were good enough to say, okay, if that's what is going to happen to us, and it's okay to yeah. do it, do something in rock and roll. 
But he hated them. I mean, I remember bringing him yesterday to record, and he looked at me, said, the Beatles, and he threw it on the floor. Right. You know, I mean, he was that, uh, you know, negative about it. Right, yeah. He hated the the music, he hated the musicians, he didn't like any of their songs. I mean, although, in 1979, he was appearing at uh, Albert Hall in London. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, we had George Harrison at the time. Right. So yep. I took George, Ringo, Paul, their wives, and uh, their manager to a Sinatra concert at uh, Albert Hall. Neil Aspinall was the manager. Okay. And afterwards, there was a party at Annabelle's and then at Cubby Broccoli's house. And Frank didn't come to Annabelle's, but he was at Cubby's house. And I took them to that party and introduced Sinatra to the Beatles, and they just, I mean, <laughs> they flattered the hell out of them. I mean, to the point of embarrassment almost. Right. You know, you were the greatest artist alive. You yeah. influenced, influenced us enormously. Right. There's nobody, no singer like you, there's no performer. I mean, yeah. they just laid it on. You know? And then, of course, he turns around to yesterday and something. Oh, okay, that's after that, right? (laughs) Yesterday All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay That's wonderful, Ted. I mean, of course, he didn't do yesterday or something after 1979 so the chronology is slightly screwy there but it's so lovely to hear Mo's voice I kept thinking I was listening to Larry David talking about Sinatra and the Beatles because it sounds exactly like Larry (laughs) but it is fascinating because Mo did so few interviews in his career I mean he literally never talked to anybody Joe Smith was like the, the sort of public face of Warner Brothers and Mo was this revered saintly figure in the in the background every no one ever had a bad word to say about about Mo and but as you as you intimate Jason I mean he was still he was part of the system you know his his hands kind of been but they weren't entirely clean shall we just say that but he seems to have you know he has died with a reputation that very few you know record industry moguls will die with you know and he's responsible for so much and he signed the kinks and Jimi hendrix to reprise and even the fugs to sinatra's horror um (laughs) and then of course it was Joni, and it was you know, it was James Taylor, it was Randy Newman, it was Van Dyke Parks, it was this amazing stable. And we were talking about giving artists three, four albums sure. to work. I mean, Warner's are absolutely, that period, exemplars of that. It's absolutely yes. extraordinary. I mean, Ry Cooder, who managed to moan all the time about it, was given a sinecure by Warner's to make, make the records he wanted for years. Yeah. None of which sold a huge amount, you know. Yeah. I mean, and we didn't even mention Neil Young. I mean, Neil Young's yeah, first yeah. album didn't sell anything, yeah. and he would have been dropped in this day and age. Anyway, so Prince, Mo, Prince. Incredibly Prince is another one. Yeah, Prince, yeah, Prince. Yeah. Yes, he says it's interesting in this interview because one. I mean, I suppose one area that you might say Warner's failed in more you know to a degree was was black music they 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 made an effort and there's an there's a moment where ben merlis asks mo about about their track record in black music and mentions prince and mo says something like 
I don't think of Prince as a black artist, which is really, really wow. interesting. <laughs> but in a way, I mean, you know, if you can imagine that little kid turning up in Burbank and sort of showing Mo and Lenny Warren what he could do, it was almost like, well, yeah, he's a black kid from the Midwest, but he's also like a rock god in the making. You know, I mean, what he, he just could do anything and everything, couldn't he? And then, and there's amazing stories of them just sitting there, just open mouthed watching Prince at work. Yeah. I mean, what was his audition was effectively to make a record in front of them just by himself. Yes. Is, is that right? He basically goes to the studio, lays down a track in front of them bit by bit, including doing the drums and the work. Yes. It's great. I love so it. They, they said, yeah, okay, let's <laughs> sign this kid. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so Mo, so Mo Austin, a huge figure, a titan. Interestingly, I was contacted a few weeks ago by. So they were they were filming Mo, one of Mo's sons. So you know, before Dad goes, we need to make a documentary about Mo and Warner Brothers and Reprise. So they they've shot quite a lot of footage of a ninety five year old Mo with you know pretty decent recall for a ninety five year old. So it was Rick Rubin who is one of the many figures in the LA music scene who sort of regards Mo or regarded Mo as his great mentor. So it was Rick was a driving force here along with Mo's son. So I'm ho- I, the hope is that there will be a great Mo Austin slash Warner reprise documentary at Ooh. some point. I mean, they've got a certain, they've got a, uh, they've got a certain amount of time with, with perfect synchronicity they, they, Neil Young was was doing an album with Rick Rubin and Mo came to watch them at work I mean it's you couldn't make this stuff up really so look we're drawing to a close here why don't you tell us Mark about some of the library pieces that have caught your attention the last fortnight yeah last week Alan Smith interviewing John Lennon for the enemy in 1969 and Lennon says I regret that Yoko wasn't my child. I don't like the idea of her being born in somebody else's womb. That's one of my great jealousies. It's a drag that she was in somebody else's womb, but I can't do anything about it. At which point you roll your eyes and think, oh, what fucking drugs were you on, mate? I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it is uh, ref- so weird and so possessive it's and so creepy. Really, it's just like really twisted. You know, I, I mean, I've never quite bought into the veneration that many of our friends and colleagues hold John Lennon in. And reading this interview, I was quite sunk even lower. Sunk <laughs> even lower. 1971, Tom Noland is a huge two-part article on the Beach Boys and primarily on Brian Wilson. This is the first part. It's absolutely fantastic stuff. And he talks to people like Carl Wilson says, there were many years of his life when he did nothing but play piano, months at a time, days on end. It's like, you know, it's a big sort of like, I don't know, 8,000 word. This the first half line. Really, really worth reading. Very, very interesting. He talks to Nick Venain. He talks to all the sort of people around. But he talks in the second part, which is going to go up in a fortnight he talks extensively to murray wilson the father which is in itself is fascinating lucky tom lucky tom (laughs) paul weller of the jam interviewed by record mirror 1977 by barry kane he says everything is misconstrued when i said i'd vote tory everyone jumps on my back all i meant was when the tories are in power people have more money in their pockets nobody can deny that this is future socialist Paul Weller. Yeah, um, Liz, Liz Truss could use him in her <laughs> campaign. 
<laughs> he says, we're intent on becoming stars. Okay, I hate Rod Stewart. I hate Mick Jagger, but I want to be a star. At least that's honest, you know. Joan Jett, interviewed by Mick Sinclair, Zigzag, 1985. She says, when I was 11 or 12, I finally got the balls to say, Mom, Dad, I want a guitar for Christmas, and I don't want no folk guitar. I love Uh, Caroline Sullivan sees Primal Scream during their rock rockiest period 1994 somehow this drummer turned singer from Sussex Far East Kilbride simply lacks the essential blend of auteur sexiness and interesting trousers to be a believable icon which is one of the better put-downs I've read in the last week or so. <laughs> Very good piece this week, Lillian Roxon on the 1966 Newport Folk Festival, which has basically turned into a bit of a riot. She says, picture a small sedate beach town riddled with history, top-heavy with old money and society names. Vanderbilt country, Jacqueline Kennedy country, tennis, sailing, summer houses the size of palaces. That's Newport. Now to it, 30,000 people who definitely don't belong. Young, broke, rebellious, jamming up the narrow colonial streets with broken-down cars, wandering through the parks with their sleeping bags, wondering where the action is. That's Newport too, which I, I'd rather love that. Well, I'm perfect. Uh, what, a fortnight after Joni Mitchell appeared for the first time That's right. on a stage in decades at Newport. Amazing. Yeah, fabulous. Robert Shelton saw Tim Buckley play the Garrett Theatre in New York in November 67, says... Better than his recordings suggest, and still a turbulent, unformed talent, Tim Buckley promises to leave his mark on the top musical poetic scene before long, which is, you know, pretty good prescient stuff. Well, not really prescient, because actually Tim Buckley didn't really make that much of a mark then, but it's, it's a pretty big figure these days. Angus Young of ACDC, interviewed by Barry Kane, again, Record Mirror, 1980. This is about a week before Bon Scott died, by the way, this interview oh, took wow. place. Right. So sometimes when I've been playing particularly mean, I have to be guided back to my dressing room because I can't see where I'm going. And then he says, we've always thought that we were in the first division, even when we were playing small clubs back in Australia. Jason, I don't know if ACDC mean anything to you. They are one of my absolute favourite bands. Me too. For sure. Oh, that was, again, everything sounds like it was part of my childhood, but they, you know, you couldn't get away from that music in, in the like late seventies, early eighties. I mean, it was everywhere. Yeah. So I love it. Uh, I mean, Highway to Hell and Back in Black are just fantastic. Highway to Hell is actually probably my, my favorite rock and roll records. Lastly, John Harris reviewed Pablo Honey by Radiohead for Enemy in 93. He says, Spoiled by the odd First Strike masterpiece, it's hard not to expect a debut album by one of our great hopes to be a finely crafted statement of intent that encapsulates their nascent genius, gets 9 out of 10, and establishes its makers as stars in waiting. Some manage it, some fail miserably, and some make flawed but satisfying things that suggest their talents will really blossom later on, such as Pablo Honey. That's my lot. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Jasper, do you have any items for consideration? I'll just mention one thing that you sent me to add, just because it kind of wraps up nicely a couple of the things that we've touched on, and it's Michael Goldberg is granted an audience with the artist formerly known as Prince <laughs> in 1998, and he writes it up from Addicted to Noise. It's a long three-and-a-half-thousand-word you know, interview with Prince, 
and he touches on record companies and Warner and all that stuff. I have no problem with record companies. Record companies work fine. We're taking a different approach to marketing. We're not cutting into their business. Their business is their business, and our business is our business. But then he also goes on to they say that they sometimes joke about record executives lying on the beach, sipping their drinks and talking about what you can't do. <laughs> he also goes into this 26 minute song he's just released called The War, which is a kind of the refrain of which is one to the evolution will be colorized, which is a reference to obviously revolution will not be televised by Gil Scott Heron. And he goes into well, he refuses to explain. He says it's a self-explanatory song, but it's this amazing 26 minute piece of music that's you know it's quite you know political so i just thought it was interesting to mention that and lastly just for a bit of light comic relief he's dressed you know in a fairly princian way with a cane clear and filled with a translucent liquid in which multicolored stars float what's that liquid in the cane i ask as i pack up my notebooks he raises the cane in the air and rotates it so that the stars floating in the liquid catch the light and sparkle sperm he says and laughs when i'm 75 i can break it out Wow. Jason, <laughs> did you ever meet Prince with Clive Davis, for example? I never met Prince. I've been in the same room as Prince, but never met him. Just, you know, honored to be able to have offered classes on Prince at the Clive Davis Institute. Yes. Uh, Questlove taught a Prince class, for instance. And I've heard through the grapevine that he was um, very much admiring the fact that, that you know, there were classes being offered at him at a university. And, and uh, I know he, he mentioned to his staff, you know, this is the reason why we do music. This is the reason why we've been in it, to end up with classes being taught on, on, on me. That's cool. That's very <laughs> right. Is that your lot, Jasper? That is my lot. That's fantastic. Great. Well, I think it's probably quite an, another very long episode. We could talk <laughs> all day. It has been really, really yeah. fascinating yeah, talking fantastic. with you, Jason. Um, thank you so much for giving us your time. I know you're busy and it is really, really appreciated because it's a lot of food for thought for me today. It's been really, really, really interesting. And we are going to sort of bring things full circle in a way having talked about mo austin and warner reprise with this last clip of boy george talking about having brunch in los angeles with Joni mitchell great see you next time and thanks again bye right. thank you everyone thank you barney thank you mark thank you jasper and thanks oh, to great. rocks back pages thank you for rocks back pages for thank all you. of the help with you know my freddie mercury research i couldn't couldn't have done it without you no one that touches her for expressing things and yet when you meet her she's hardcore I mean she is not what you think really she ain't she ain't a, she ain't a trippy hippie she's outspoken she slags people off she speaks yeah. her mind I mean it's like fucking hell I had brunch with her in LA and I was frightened to leave the table <coughs> <laughs> she dissed everyone from Mozart to the Beatles to Patty Smith and I was like I, and I was starving from what you know it was one of these brunches yeah. and I was like I really want to get some more eggs but I just didn't dare leave the table Woke up it was a Chelsea morning and the first thing that I heard was a song outside my window and the traffic wrote the words That was Boy George in conversation with Bill Brewster in 2002 concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast Many thanks to special guest Jason King Find him on Instagram and Twitter at Jason King Says the host of Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Wake up, it's a Chelsea morning.
Love Target? Well, you're about to love it even more. With Target's Red Card Debit Card, you'll save 5% every Target trip, on top of everyday low prices, in-store and online. Debit Red Card links from your existing bank account. Visit Target.com slash Red Card to get all the details. Restrictions apply. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 